Nona Jones, an internationally renowned speaker, preacher, author, and business executive who has become a recognized voice of hope and healing and inspiration to many, using her platform to equip people to rise from their past pain into a fulfilling future. Nona is also the head of faith-based engagement for Facebook. Hey everybody, Dr. David Anderson here. So good to see you today. We've been doing these traveling meetings where we would go to people's homes for conversation of hope. And we've had a conversation of hope with uh, Nona Jones, who you're gonna get to know, uh, love her a lot. She has a word for you, a word for us today. And Nona, thank you for allowing us to come into your home. Oh, thank you for being here. Uh, yeah. So blessed by you and your team and your spirit. So. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, we wanna get to know you a little bit. So I'm gonna ask you a little bit about your background, starting with, how did you come to know the Lord? When did that happen? Well, so the way I like to describe myself is I always give just five words. I am a statistically improbable product of grace. Wow. I so, love it. you know, people tend to walk into the successful chapter your life is on and they assume that's the whole story. But yeah. the way that I came to know the Lord is because I grew up in a very traumatic situation um, mm. physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, neglect. My mother had um, and still has mental illness. And from a very young age, uh, her boyfriend became sexually abusive to me. I was about five, five and a half at the time. And um, when I was about seven, I worked up the courage to tell her what was happening because mm. it was repeating. And uh, I told her what was happening and she had him arrested and I thought it was over. But on the day of his release from jail, she took me with her to pick him up and brought him back home. Oh, wow. How many where, years was that? Uh, he was gone for about a year. Okay. Yeah, about a year. And he was listed as a registered sex offender. He was not supposed to be within a thousand feet of a child or even a child care facility. And here he was coming wow. right back to the home and he started doing it again. Uh, you must have been fearful he when back. he came back home. Oh, I was. I, and I, I didn't want him to come back. And as a matter of fact, my mother, before she took me with her, said, hey, what do you think about him coming back? I was like, I don't want him to. And she said, well, I'm an adult and I make the decisions and he's coming back. So that oh. was that. Uh, but I didn't grow up in a Christian household. And uh -huh. so because of all the turmoil and the trauma, when I was about nine years old, um, I tried to take my life. Oh, wow. And I figured that whatever was on the other side of death could not possibly be worse than what I was living. Mm. But it was unsuccessful. And, um, but you were serious about it. Oh, I was I was completely serious. I well, tried just to cry to, for help. You, no, you were ready to go bye-bye. Yeah, I, I tried to drink some poison and it didn't kill me. And so oh. uh, fast forward to 11, I tried to take my life again. And that time oh. I tried to do it by slitting my wrist. And as a matter of fact, I have a have a permanent scar on the inside of my uh, left wrist. I want to see it. Yeah, that's, that's where I tried to do it. And if you look wow. how close it is to the artery, yeah. uh, I, I just missed it. But wow. I had that as a permanent reminder of the grace of God. And it was shortly after that episode that a classmate of mine in the sixth grade invited me to church. Now, mind you, I didn't even know what church was. Wow. I didn't know what church was. I never heard of Jesus, the Bible, none of that. Um, so I thought we were going to go over her house and just play. And so uh, we went to this, this church and we got out and I, I looked around and there were all these families like holding hands, walking to the building. And and it was shocking to me because I had I didn't have a model for that. Right. And so, you know, we walked in the, the doors and the people standing at the doorway, they looked at me and they said, well, hey, beautiful. They gave me a hug and like I felt wanted and loved. And the very first sermon I ever heard preached, the pastor said, God is a father to the fatherless. The reason why that was important mm. is my biological father and my mother had been married for 13 years when she found out she was pregnant with me. 
but he passed away two months shy of my second birthday. And so between that time and the time that I tried to end my life at 11, I had always wanted my father. And I would cry Mm. at night, like for my father. Mm. And so when he said that God is a father to the fatherless, I immediately thought, well, who is this God? Mm. Like, who is God? What is God? And that's what catalyzed my journey. And it was a year later, after attending that church regularly, getting involved faithfully, being discipled by the youth pastor, that I accepted Jesus as Lord of my life. Wow. So when you sing that song, he's a good, good father, does that just do something to you? Listen, that (laughs) is my testimony. Like he... He was and is the father that I always wanted. He's yeah. been my protector, my provider. He's been my encourager. Yeah, um, yeah. God saved my life. Well, how about that? Yeah. What is it? Isaiah 9, 6 uh, yeah. says he's going to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, Amen. Uh, everlasting father Amen. and prince of peace. That's amazing. Yeah. So then God saves you and mm-hmm. somehow now here you are. Uh, in ministry, yeah. did you feel a call to ministry at a young age too, or did that evolve? I, I did, although I didn't quite know what that meant. Like mm-hmm. I felt, and I told people this, it was, it was so interesting. Like before I became saved, I had no consciousness of God, mm-hmm. but I knew in, in, intuitively, I knew the difference between right and wrong. And so after I started to follow Jesus, it became really important to me to live up to his expectations of me. And so right. I was the kid in high school carrying my Bible to school. Uh-huh. You know, I was uh-huh. the kid who, no matter what church I was a part of, I ended up leading the, the youth ministry. Right. I would end up being like the youth speaker. And so I think when I was about 16 is when I, I felt called to, to really preach in a more formal capacity. And I told okay. my pastor at the time, and he said, I'm so glad that you now see what I've always seen. And he mm. took me under his wing and began to tutor me and, and teach me the ways of, of God and ministry. And at 17 years old, I was licensed uh, formally into ministry. How about uh, that? So yeah, I, I felt the call for for a while. Yeah, I think I was 20 years old when I was when I was licensed. I got saved about 18 years mm. old. So, but I grew up opposite of you in a Christian yeah. home, and I knew all the right language and everything. But it really wasn't until about 18 that I fully, mm. fully surrendered. And yeah. so, what's interesting is when you are in ministry at a young age, that there's a motivation that drives you. And at the same time, you're still maturing. That's right. Where is that uh, intersection of being called to ministry and at the same time you're maturing as a person? Did you find any conflict there? Oh, yeah. So, you know, uh, accepted the call, you know, around 16 years old, got licensed at 17. And I was really just on fire for God, you know, moved away to go to college. And I think the first year or two in college, I was still on fire for God, got invited to preach and speak at churches all around the the state and the country. Um, And then there was a period in my second year that summer where I started to kind of pull away. And I think we kind of go through that moment where we're like, okay, yeah, church is cool and that's fun, but look at the fun they're having over there. And so uh, I, I had I joined a sorority and, you know, the way that we were raising money for our chapter was through parties. Right. And so I was never one to go to parties or clubs or any of that. But I started to go for these fundraisers and I was like, OK, this is fun. This right, is cool. Right. And so uh, I think for that period, that very brief period, but it was an intense period, I pulled away from God knowing that God had already called me, knowing that God had yeah. set me apart, knowing that. But I was like, I'm going to have some fun for a minute. Right. And I think that's part of the maturing process yeah, is so. it's, it's not so much, you know, falling away and you know backsliding, yeah. but it, it really is 
knowing who you believe and who you trust in for real. Right, right. Because I think you made the point. You grew up in a Christian home where mm-hmm. you knew the things to say. Right. We know the church ease. Right. Um, but do you know God for real? So much yeah. so that you you don't see any other option yeah. because he is the best that there is. Right. And do you know him for yourself, not just your mom's amens, your That's dad's it. hallelujahs and That's it. church yeah. pastor saying what you're supposed to believe. So you found him for yourself. You for began myself. to lead. Um, and so then when you uh, begin preaching all around and mm-hmm. becoming known and things of that sort, uh, you also then moved into a time of leadership development and mm-hmm. teaching. Don't you run an institute now? I that? do. Yeah. So it's, it's called the Nona Jones Leadership Academy. Um, and what I do is uh, I call it trauma informed leadership mm. because, you know, I was very, very graced, fortunate, blessed. God gave me success in my career at an early age. I mean, I was appointed to an executive role in a Fortune 500 company at like 23. So from wow. there, it was just kind of a rapid rise up. But I also discovered along the way that there were so many seasons when I still felt empty. I felt worthless. Mm. I felt like I didn't matter. I had all the trappings of success, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I had the title, the position, I had the car, I had the invitations to the exclusive events. I had all that, but I didn't have peace and I didn't mm. have joy. Mm. I didn't have the fruit of the spirit. And so what God taught me through that process is that there was pain in my past that was showing up in my present. There were, uh-huh. there were some uh, ramifications of things I hadn't dealt with that were having residual impacts on my ability to enjoy the success that God gave me. And Mm so trauma-informed leadership is really my approach to helping people heal where success won't help. Mm. And that's that's my mission. And they can still heal while they're leading. Absolutely. Right. They don't yeah. have to like, okay, I realize that I've screwed up in the past and I, go, I let me go fix myself and then yeah. come back and lead. Mm-hmm. But it's the journey of leading while tending Absolutely. to those pains yeah. from the past. And it becomes an awareness. So mm. for me, once I became aware of the fact that trauma was, was really influencing the way that I was showing up as a leader, it helps me to begin changing the way I was showing up as a leader. So I totally agree with you. You don't have yeah. to you know, go away. You don't have to take a sabbatical. You uh-huh. don't have to quit. You can really just learn and grow while doing the work on yourself. Is this where your book comes from, uh, Success? Look at this yes. one right here. <laughs> from Nona Jones, y'all. Yes. Success from the inside out. Yeah. Is that where this yeah. comes from? The idea of trauma-informed leadership and, yeah. and trying to lead inwardly as Absolutely. well as outwardly? Yeah. I. I think through my experience, I, I came to realize that success is not something you attain. It's something that you discover because mm-hmm. you you can have all the things, right? Like we know of people who are very, very wealthy, influential, powerful, who ended up taking their own life because they didn't feel that's they right. had anything worth living for. And that to me, that spells the fact that you can have out, outward success, but if you are not shored up on the inside, mm. it doesn't matter. So I do in the book, I have a lot of case studies on people who um, went through very tumultuous periods and they had and they had all the stuff, but they didn't have peace. Mm. And so I'm really trying to equip people uh, through my own life as the case study yeah. uh, on how to achieve peace. And and the Bible in Joshua chapter one verse eight, my favorite verse in the Bible. I don't have so many favorite, but my favorite. Um, it's an important passage because between verses like one through eight, God is talking to Joshua. So at the end of Deuteronomy, you know, Moses dies right? and God basically turns to Joshua and he's like, all right, Moses, my servant is now dead. Time to lead. And Joshua's like, wait, what? But before he is able to take the children of Israel into the promised land, God says, be strong and courageous. 
Verse mm-hmm. eight, he says, yeah. meditate in the law day and day night. Do night. not turn from it to the right or the left for then you will make your way prosperous and mm-hmm. then you will have good success. Good success. Now, when I saw the phrase good success, I thought to myself, good success? Success is good by definition. So why would success be good? And that told me that there is a success that is not good. How about that? There is a success that comes with frustration and pain and resentment. And for me, it's like, listen, I want the type of success that's going to leave me feeling joyful and peaceful and and gracious. That is good success. It's not simply achieving more and more and more. It really is achieving what God has for you and feeling a sense of meaning and and peace because you know you're in his will. That's it. Wow. That's great. That book on success is is a beautiful opportunity for those who are listening right now, because I I can only imagine uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people might be thinking, I have success, Mm -hmm. but I don't have peace. Mm hmm. So this is a book they need to pick up, but it's not the only one of yours. You wrote a book from social media to social ministry, Mm -hmm. and that book teaches about the art of digital discipleship. Can you explain what that means? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, So digital discipleship is taking the tools that technology offers and translating them into a relational context. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I think a lot of people call, you know, YouTube social media, they call Snapchat social media, they call Twitter social media. The reality is those platforms are not social media. They're broadcast media. Mm. The difference is social media fosters communication between and among people. Broadcast media allows you to send a message from yourself to a group of people. You're now, just broadcasting what you want people to here. Exactly. But you're saying social media is when there's engagement, interaction and yes. connection. And you're able to actually create relationships. Like uh-huh. the discipleship is just the relational maturation of your faith. Yeah. So I think, you know, this as a pastor, my husband and I know this as pastors. Discipleship is not what happens when we stand up and preach. Like we're, we're educating people, but discipleship is what happens after when people right. get into those small group contexts right. and they're they're asking questions and they're going deeper and they're mm-hmm. applying the word and they have somebody who's helping them grow in their faith. Yeah. So social ministry is really about helping people use technology to disciple other people. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's that's great. And for folk who are trying to grow in your faith, I guess what's important is not just to have your Bible and your journal by yourself yeah. with your, you know, with maybe your mm-hmm. U version or your yeah. whatever aid that you have, which is an important part. But don't you believe that Christianity is more than just believing and having a personal relationship with God? Mm-hmm. It really is about belonging too, isn't it? Absolutely. Like, And the truth is, that's what actually separates Christianity from other faiths. So because of the work that I do at Facebook and my team supports all faiths, okay? Uh, we work with the um, Islamic community, we work with the Jewish community, we work with the Hindu community. What I have found across all those different, what we call faiths, is that they're very individualistic, hmm. which is, uh, as a Muslim, you pray a certain number of times a day, you can do it by yourself. Um, as a Jew, you may not even go to a synagogue, you know, hmm. you may be a cultural Jew, like you right. identify as Jewish, but right. you know, if we pray, we pray, if we don't, we don't. Um, those religious traditions don't require fellowship, but Christianity has mm. at the center of our theology, yeah. 
not forsaking fellowship right? because right. there is power in coming together in community. Yeah, the early was, church devoted themselves to absolutely. fellowship. That, that is the, the model. Yes, that's the huh. model of the church. I think where we've started to drift into this kind of individualistic expression of faith, it doesn't really jive with uh, even the, the model that Jesus had, right? So yeah. Jesus, the Messiah, he doesn't come to the into the world and he's just, you know, walking the yeah. world by himself. Yeah. He immediately starts to pull people so that he can have a group of 12 that he can disciple right. and pour into and they can grow together because after he leaves, they're going to carry forth the work and they're going to disciple other people. And he talks about a kingdom. Yes. Like, you know, so there's a group of people that he's the king for, not just mm-hmm. uh, I'm your personal king only, Amen. but I'm the king of all uh, in the kingdom. And yeah. we're domestically uh, together, yeah. right? And that. so what do you think about this idea of, so you got individual faith, mm-hmm. you've got corporate faith, but now I'm thinking about factional faith mm. where instead of us all being one group in the kingdom of yeah. God with one king, it's as if we are in groups. So you've got whites in the kingdom and blacks in the kingdom and Koreans in the kingdom. And then you throw politics and it begins to separate into these factions. Uh, What's going on with that? And how do we how do we address that from your leadership opinion? You know, I I believe that the old statement divide and conquer Mm. absolutely applies to the spiritual realm. Mm, Yeah. And I think that is a strategy that Satan has used from the very beginning. I mean, if you think about it, uh, in the Garden of Eden, he didn't talk to Adam and Eve, even though the Bible says that Adam was there with her. Right. He talked to Eve. Right. The goal is to create division. Right. Right. And so we all have our different understandings. And so I'm going to go to this group because my understanding is this and they agree with that. And so it's basically a spiritual tactic to divide and conquer. And we see that happening now. I mean, I... I think about how um, so many self-professed Christians, I will never judge a person's faith, but so many self-professed Christians um, are are disparaging other Christians, are are slandering them, are even um, encouraging violence against them. And it it makes you wonder, how did we get to that point if we are all reading the same Bible? They're almost, and we might as well just talk about this. Now we came out of 2020, we're in 2021. (laughs) So, Do you think that, not do you think, what is the deal with Christians disparaging other Christians? Are they putting their politics first? Absolutely. You know, I I have so many people, uh, again, because of the work I do at Facebook, I have people come to me and they say, you know, conservative Christians are being suppressed and conservative Christians are being silenced. And I hear that phrase so often that I, I can't help but ask, how did we come to identify ourselves first by our politics? and second by our faith. Mm. Conservative Christians, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, the, the thing that I believe has happened is that we have fallen for the Faustian bargain of believing that, mm. well, if if I just you know put, put a little bit of morality off in the corner, mm. I can get power. But right. God has never asked us to walk in power. He's yes. always asked us to walk in authority. Mm. And authority comes from the word of God. So the moment that we decide that the word of God is no longer our guide, that the talking points are our guide or that the senator is our guide or even the president is our guide, what we'll do is we'll try to fit the Bible into what they say. Mm -hmm. And that's what creates 
hypocrisy, yeah. which of course is saying you believe one thing, but then doing something else. Mm. And I think that's where we've, we've come. And, and what's really sad to me, Dr. Anderson, is that as a church, we have done generations worth of damage over the last mm. few years. Yeah. I mean, Generation Z is looking like, I don't want nothing to do with this. I mean, my chief of staff, yeah. I'm a millennial, but my chief of staff is like a younger millennial. Very, very brilliant, very smart man. I mean, he went to divinity school at Harvard, incredible guy. And he told me, he's grew up in the church his whole life. He said, Nona, I don't have a place for me in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's scary. Like That's someone right. who, who has so much potential and promise and loves the Lord. And he said, I don't have a place in the church. And he said, I really don't have a place in politics either. So what right. do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Where do you go? Yeah. And who do you connect to as your place of belonging. Yeah. You yeah. know, D- do you think online is a way that people can connect and find a place of belonging? Yes. Um, with guardrails, you know, because mm. sometimes what happens is online you go online, you, you end up in echo chambers uh, with people who totally agree with everything that you say. And I don't think it's ever good to be in a room with people who agree with everything you say. Right. Because we only grow when we're challenged. Right. And we only know that what we believe is right and true when it's challenged, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think what has happened is, especially as I look at the extremism and the terrorism that has happened in mm-hmm. the name of making America great again. Yeah. As I look at that, what has happened is people have put themselves in ideological bubbles and echo chambers. Um, I sometimes watch on YouTube, you know, people who are professed Christians who literally sound like they just finished talking to the president. I mean, what they're Mm -hmm. saying is exactly what he says. And I'm like, that doesn't square with scripture. Mm. So we have to find a way to get back. And, And, you know, part of me is thinking, I don't know that it's getting back to God. I think we just need to go toward God. Some, mm. some of this, I think, is that we have people who were never rooted in, in God in the first place. Right. 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 Um, so we sprinkle some churchies and some right. language on top of our beliefs yeah. that were never biblical in the first place. Well, and the storms and the crisis then show you how deep your roots really are. Yes, that's so true. You know, and the difference between bending and breaking. If mm. your roots are not deep enough, you're going to break. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so do you think that um, there is hope as we think about... Uh, these conversations of hope, and you're kicking off these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we're not supposed to despair, but things can look pretty gloomy. Yeah. What word of hope do you have for us today, Nona Joe? Listen, as long as there is Jesus, there is hope. Mm-hmm. I will never lose hope because Jesus is risen. He's not in a tomb somewhere. You know, yeah. he's not hanging on a cross somewhere. Yeah. He is risen and he is living in living this world. Hope. And what that yeah. means is we will always have hope. And we can call on the name of Jesus in any situation. He shows up because there is power in the name of Jesus. Mm. I think the other reason why I have have hope is because I see people who realize this isn't right. This isn't good. I'm talking about people of all racial and faith positions who are like, this isn't right. And they're Mm. willing to stand up and declare that and work on behalf of change. Mm. So I have hope. Yes, it feels dark. But I think one of the tactics of the enemy is to try to make it seem like he has more power than he does. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is he has, you know, a few thousand people, you know, overrun the Capitol, right? They right. take over the Capitol and it's 24 hours on the news. And we're like, oh my gosh, the country's coming to an end. Yeah. Out of like 300 million people, a couple thousand did something really ridiculous. Right. That doesn't mean that he's won. Right. But he will try his best mm-hmm. to get us to despair. Um, and so I believe that God is always has a remnant. 
Mm. As always, he has a remnant. And so mm. that's what gives me hope. Mm. Um, it may feel isolating. I may feel alone sometimes. But I take heart in the fact that, listen, they hung Jesus on the cross and thought that was it. Right. That but was that was, done. that was part of the story. Yeah. That yeah. was part of the process. He was yeah. hung on the cross because it had to happen. Right. Before the resurrection. The Sunday morning was coming. Come on. <laughs> There's always a crucifixion before the resurrection. We oh, have to remember that. Wow. wow, that's great. That's great. So what do you think about racism? What do you think about multicultural ministry? You seem to be very, very uh, talented, skilled, and gifted to be able to build bridges and cross many different areas between business and, mm-hmm. and religion, between um, black and white and Asian and Hispanic. That's a grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a beautiful thing. As you think about the future, as you think about ministries that uh, you and your husband are are launching and, and mm-hmm. friends around the world that you're connecting to, uh, what are your thoughts about multicultural ministry and uh, racism as it relates to racism? Yeah. Like this is something we're going to have to go after, isn't it? We can't oh, just yeah. say goodbye to racism. <laughs> Uh, it's systemic racism that doesn't exist anymore. Da-da, right, it's right. gone, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, first of all, I I love the um, I love the posture and the thought of gracism, mm. um, because grace we know is to be just the divine mm. power of God in order to change situations, yes, yes. and that's what we need because racism is so foundational um, to yeah. this country, and yeah. and people may not want to believe it. But it's true. You know, it's true. I mean, the founding fathers, they drafted the Constitution with the idea that uh, a citizen of this country could not be a black person. So that's that was the idea. Um, But I say that because uh, last summer I founded an organization called Faith and Prejudice, um, where our entire focus is equipping the church to confront and dismantle systemic racism in America. Mm-hmm. My reason for that is the church has to lead on this. We cannot stand yeah. back and hope the Democrats figure it out or the Republicans figure right. it out because statistically, 30% of Americans uh, identify as Republican, 31% identify as Democrat, but 65% identify as Christian. More than both major political parties combined. So we're not going to change the hearts of Congress until we first change the heart of the church. How about that? It starts with us. We have to lead on this. Um, Prejudice, what is it? Prejudice. I love love your definition on this, by the way. (laughs) So uh, I can't take credit. It was a gentleman named Nathan Rutstein who Uh said, prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. Mm, and I think say that again. come on now. <laughs> prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. Because we probably all have this. Oh yeah. But this idea of I really don't care what the truth is. I don't I don't wanna I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what the facts are. I have no. an emotional commitment to yeah. ignorance. Yeah, there's there's an emotional investment in ignorance. And this is why God compels us to forsake darkness. He compels us to forsake ignorance. He tells us the hidden work of shame. Like don't don't allow yourself to yield and lean into that. Pursue wisdom. Mm. God is is known as light. Mm. Jesus is known as the light of the world. Mm. Light and darkness cannot coexist. But darkness is ignorance. And so our organization, our entire focus is helping people walk in the light of God's truth mm. and helping people break that emotional commitment to ignorance. ignorance. But what it all gets back to, I think, honestly, you know, as I talk to some, some of my white brothers and sisters, I think what it comes down to is when, it, when you talk about systemic racism, the reason why people say it's not real, it doesn't exist, is because if systemic racism existed, it would undermine the idea of white supremacy. Because mm. white supremacy is based on the idea 
that white people are inherently and biologically superior to black people, which means if that's true, then they shouldn't need help. They shouldn't need policies or systems uh, or discriminatory uh, policies. They shouldn't need any of that because they're just superior. So when you talk about systemic racism, the reason why people resist it is not because they resist the idea, it's because now you're attacking their identity. Mm. You're saying that they are not superior. You're saying that they are not mm. biologically superior. And so uh, I recognize So how someone's that. confronted with that and they're, and they're like, no, I don't believe I'm biologically superior. Right. But yet they're still holding on to uh, the fact that uh, ideas of supremacy, but they don't really recognize it as supremacy. Yeah. How do you break? How do you break that emotional commitment to ignorance? So typically, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, well, so we know that in the area of economics, right? So black people tend to have one dollar for every ten dollars of wealth that white people have. Why do you think that is? And then what they'll usually say is, well, you know, probably just because they're not working as hard or right. whatever. I said, oh, okay, so you think that they're slothful. You think that black they're people lazy. have a character of laziness, right? And it's like, well, no, 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 I don't, I don't believe it. It's like, okay, then how would you explain that? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, then you talk about health disparities, right? It's like, okay, so we know that black people tend to have worse health outcomes than white people in every way. How would you explain that? And if you start to get into questions of genetic predispositions and all that, it's like, okay, so then in fact, you do believe that whites are biologically superior to blacks. And then that's when they say, well, no, it's not what I believe. Okay, well then you just said that. That's, mm -hmm. like, I'm telling you your own words. And so that's yeah. typically what we do. And once we have that conversation and people are forced to recognize, wait a minute, I do have white supremacist ideology within mm -hmm. me. Now we can work on that. Mm -hmm. But you can't work on that you until you won't admit it. Yeah. So what do you say to the white uh, brother and sister that's saying, look, I wanna be helpful, I want to, uh, hear what you're saying, yeah. and I want to really do something uh, about it. Help me, Nona. Yeah. Well, uh, a few things. Of course, there are the big legislative remedies that everyone's always talking about in mm -hmm. Congress, um, but that's actually not where energy is needed. Energy is needed locally, uh, whether it's supporting education in mm -hmm. predominantly black communities, um, talking to your local state's attorney on their policies for incarcerating uh, black people. I can guarantee you that if you were to look in your local community, yeah. anywhere in this country, I don't have to know where you live. If you looked at uh, the percentage of black people being incarcerated versus white people, you will find that there's a huge disparity. Mm -hmm. Meet with your local state's attorney and find out why that is. Meet with your local chief of police, your sheriff. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because mm -hmm. these people work for you right. um, uh, in the area of uh, economics. Find out about local black owned businesses in your community and begin to support them. Yeah. And not just the restaurants. Like, look, yeah. black people have good food. We know that. Got yeah. it. Yeah. But you have, you know, dry cleaners, you have insurance agents, you have bankers. Mm -hmm. I mean, support them so that yeah. you can begin to change the economic conditions in the black community. So mm -hmm. it's local. Like that's that's yeah. where the change is needed and that's where it's gonna happen. I guess we have to start with the heart too, though, don't we? Like Absolutely. once once somebody comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he begins to unravel all of that. Can yeah. I just ask you, earlier you talked about the fact that there's hope because there's Jesus and Jesus rose again from the dead. Uh, maybe you could just tell someone today how they could actually receive uh, that hope personally. Amen, amen. Well, I would say that if you have found yourself in need uh, of salvation, you found yourself in need of a savior, number one, 
There is nothing that you could have done before today mm-hmm. that is so bad that it makes you beyond the reach of Jesus. It makes you beyond the reach of his grace. I want you to know that first. Secondly, if you do want Jesus to be Lord of your life, it's a decision that mm-hmm. you can make in this instant yeah. to let Jesus be Lord of your life. And once you make that decision, you have to get into the word of God in order to discover what he requires of you. I promise you that there is nothing God requires of you that you're unable to do because you will have the grace of God to do it. And I will also say this, this is going to be really important. Make sure that you surround yourself with like-minded people. Mm-hmm. It's really, really difficult to live your life for Jesus when you're surrounded by people who are not on the same path as you. So make sure you start to prune your relationships, okay? And I want to pray with you mm-hmm. while we're here. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to repeat after me, all right? Heavenly Father, Today I come to you in recognition of my need of you. Jesus, I choose you to be Lord of my life. I will serve you with my life mm-hmm. now and forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen and amen. And listen, if you pray that powerful prayer, uh, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, you have just come into a relationship with God where you're going to feel a brand new sense of life. You've just crossed over from death to life. If you want to know more about that, how you can grow in your faith, how you can get connected, like Nona Jones was saying, just text fill me, F-I-L-L-M-E, to 97,000. We'll make sure someone follows up with you. Uh, Nona Jones, it's just been so good to have Crystal, uh, let's see, g- ginger, ginger crystal. Honey. Yes, is ginger honey is? crystals. <laughs> yeah, it's not tea though, right? No, it's, it's not ginger tea. honey crystals with you and to be able to fellowship <laughs> with you. Thank you for your great work and ministry and friendship. Mm-hmm. I cheer you on. I support okay. you. I run with you. I push you. I thank God for you. Oh, I'm so grateful for you. Thank yeah. you for your ministry and just yeah. for having these conversations of hope because we yeah. need to know need that. that hope is not lost. Amen and amen. Cheers. Amen. Cheers. Ooh. Amen.